Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm professor at Grove City College and fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And I'm here with my long-standing friend and co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Good to see you, Todd. Good to see you, Carl. You know, I, I was thinking just now as you were introducing yourself, I'm, I'm not a fellow anywhere. I have no fellow no 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 fellowship no fellow uh, how, how do you get one of those and what well, would be a good have, one for me you have to be somebody of merit for a start oh well yeah uh, and uh, you have to challenge. work hard and, and that kind of stuff <laughs> so and, two uh, strikes for me right two there. strikes against you two strikes against you. <sighs> but you are on the uh you know in the trenches of the mega church world i mean what is it like so mega church true mega uh, well you know it's very difficult carl not everybody can do it um you know i i i I mean, there's got to be a fellowship for that, right? I mean, for for average, for highly average people like myself, there's got to be some sort of a fellows program. I, I would I, think I, so. I could occupy uh, a chair somewhere, p- perhaps. You could um, make yourself. I've always been fascinated by the title theologian in residence. Ooh, that mm, I like. like the kind of job. Is, are we just paying people around to hang around and think theological thoughts? Maybe you should aspire to that. That I like. And I've heard that there are some decent, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of online PhD mills that I might be able to get something rather quickly <laughs> at very little, you know, with, with very low expectations. Hey, 500 bucks and I'll give you a PhD. Man. Nice. Just, uh, send, send me the cash. So. Nice. Okay. I like it. As long as it comes with a great looking, um, certificate that I can frame and, uh, and all that kind of stuff, I'd be, I'd be excited, Carl. Uh, well, we'll see what we can do. And talking of fellows, we actually have a fellow, <laughs> a, a real live, a honest real to goodness live fellow, fellow with us. He self-identifies as the <laughs> teaching fellow of the Davenant Institute. Uh, his name is Joseph Minnick, and he is uh, not only the founding editor of uh, the magazine Ad Fontes, which we have mentioned on this program numerous times before, and I do encourage our readers to go to the Davenant Institute website, track down Ad Fontes, get yourself on the mailing list, because it's a magazine that publishes very thoughtful articles on very pressing social and cultural issues from a Protestant perspective. But Joseph is also the author of uh, what I think is a quite brilliant uh, new book, uh, Bulwarks of Unbelief, Atheism and Divine Absence in a Secular Age. And it's that book that we want to talk with Joseph about today. So welcome to the program, Joseph. Great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm really happy to be here. We've been looking forward to this. Now, for those who are not familiar with books of more than, say, 100 pages, (laughs) like my co-host Todd here, (laughs) uh, they they may not have picked up the, the clear reference in the title of this work to Charles Taylor. In Charles Taylor, in his book, A Secular Age, early on in that book, he has a chapter, uh, The Bulwarks of Belief. Mm -hmm. And for those unfamiliar with Taylor, it's a massive tome 
where Taylor, Charles Taylor really attempts to to complicate in a very good way, I think, the story of how the West has come to find belief in God so difficult. Now, clearly, the title of your work picks up on Taylor. Um, how would you uh, describe the relationship between the narrative that you tell and the narrative that Charles Taylor tells in his work? An easy question to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the way Taylor frames the question, which very deeply has shaped my my intellectual project, is, of course, like, what is it like to believe in 1500 versus what it's like to believe in 2000 is a, is a different backdrop. And so in 2000, you're believing against the backdrop of feeling somehow in your bones, as it were, that there's other options out there because you're in such intimate contact with other options. And that changes, in a sense, the character of belief. Whereas in 1500 AD... uh, well, you might have had heretics, you know, you might have had people denying, you know, some item of the creed or something like that. It, it, you know, what Taylor observes is it doesn't appear that anybody was walking around, or at least there was, you know, you could maybe count the exceptions on a few fingers. It doesn't appear there was anybody walking around in the Middle Ages, for instance, who didn't find some the basic notion of God just very, very plausible. And what, <coughs> excuse me, what Taylor wants to do, in a sense, is tell that story. What what happened between 1580 and 2000 then? And the way he sets it up is this chapter, Bulwarks of Belief, which is a pretty mammoth chat. It's a mammoth book, of course, and it's a mammoth chapter in a mammoth book. Uh, And effectively, what Taylor is doing with the notion of Bulwarks of Belief is saying what made everybody or what made it very difficult not to believe in God in the year 1500 AD, say, wasn't because everybody had internalized Thomas's metaphysics and could regurgitate the five proofs, right? That, that's not what it was. It was that the whole order of life, the whole order of, not, not, and not just like family life and church life, but walking outside, exchanging things at a marketplace, uh, uh, architecture, the words written on architectural walls, basic exchanges that occur between humans were so suffused with theological and, and religious signification that just moving around in the world was almost impossible to do without making some kind of conscious, even if it's um, even if it's just a practical reference to God. And so what I what I try to do, what he what he says is effectively is in some ways those bulwarks disintegrate and in the modern world, you know, atheism becomes possible. And he tells a, I think, a very compelling story in a lot of ways. He identifies, and this is just setting up where I maybe I I try to supplement Taylor some. He identifies the uh, the late you know, mid to late 19th century is kind of the pl- the moment where yeah there were some unbelie- there were some atheists and such out there there's a, a rising what we could call kind of pre background of secularism but it seems about the middle of the 19th century that we really can in European and American culture walk around and you can find people saying you know what God God actually is out of a job now um, and and he sort of narrows in what what is it going on right there that sort of fills out the narrative of why is it that period that 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 we we, we kind of make the final move in a sense where we excise God from the cosmic imaginary. And I, I, I guess what I would say that my book provides, and this is now bulwarks of unbelief, uh, what, what is the whole arrangement of the social order such that perhaps there's a, there's a tendency, if not to 
kick God out of the job, but to make him less obvious than he would have been, perhaps, or to render belief in God less um, natural uh, for us, less instinctual for us than it was for our ancestor, ancestors. And what I try to fill out then, in when I look at the 19th century, is the impact of the Industrial Revolution, the proliferation of modern technology, and the um, uh, and especially uh, in this book, uh, I wrote a shorter book before this, but in this book, I, I talk also about human labor. And so it's how does technology, labor, city life, suburban suburban life, the automobile, you kind of smash all that together. Um, uh, how does that shape the way that we just imagine what reality is like, basically? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's looking, you might say in the taxonomy that, um, and then I'll shut up after this and pass it back to you guys. I don't mean to, I don't want to enter. No, uh, no right. you're doing well. Uh, one of the, one of the, uh, 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 uh Carl didn't say this, but he wrote the foreword to, to the book. And one of the reasons I asked uh, Carl to write it was because uh, you tell a, a, a story, an intellectual history in your recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a very, very influential and a good book. I, we, we had an interview with Carl about that. Uh, but all throughout, one of the things that I really appreciate about uh, Carl's book is the, uh, emphasizing I am only telling an intellectual, the intellectual side of the story. There's a material culture side of the story that you really need to tell the full story, uh, in a sense, to really fill out the picture of how disorientation from gender works. And in a sense, you might say, I'm not talking about gender in this book, but I am trying to tell, in a sense, that flip side, that material culture side, say, between you know 1850 and 1960, or really into today. And how does that shape it, it, it? All of that material, of course, is relevant to contemporary gender discussions because it's the same forces that disorient us. Uh, and yet, uh, what I'm doing is applying it to the secularism question. Uh, how does all that? How do all those forces combine to kind of make God seem a little less obvious to us? That that's effectively the. That was a lot of words, uh, but uh, that's effectively, uh, yeah, the, the difference. I think. You're a disciple of Charles Taylor, clearly. I mean, he's a lot of words, man. As we yes, <laughs> my writing oh, style, words, but for better words, or for yeah. worse, does does come from Charles Taylor. <laughs> um, Joseph, you mentioned the you know five proofs just very briefly, uh, and for those who you know aren't aware, that goes back to um, gosh, early medieval period um, is where yeah, so Anselm Coyne was. Guys, mm-hmm. oh, I'm sure I should know. Ryan, 13th century. Kill me. Yeah, yeah, 13th yeah. century. 13th yeah, century. Right. Yeah. So, um, and, and at the time, of course, the the project behind the five proofs wasn't to try to convince atheists to believe because atheists were still (laughs) a very rare anomaly, maybe a village atheist every once in a while here and there. But, um, uh, and, and some have criticized the five proofs though. I, I find them to be helpful accompaniments, but, but do, do you find that just in terms of, of um, intellectual progress o- over the ages. Um, people seem to be rather comfortable combining um, various things. So, for instance, if um, uh, as as a person in the modern era, and I don't think I'm too unusual in this, um, I, I don't have much difficulty combining certain categories from the early medieval period with you know what we know today in in the modern yeah. era and, and there's plenty of hefty intellectuals out there who certainly have no problem doing that my part of my question would be um it doesn't seem to me and i've i've read some pieces recently that uh, the 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 new atheists and the the so-called four horsemen uh from you know 10 15 20 years ago um 
as they've aged, as one of them has died, their project doesn't seem to be faring all that well in in some circles. And if that's mm-hmm. the case, I, I don't know if you have an opinion on that. But if I'm, I'm if if that's the case, if they haven't been nearly as influential as maybe they had hoped to be, and I and I've heard Dawkins say that explicitly. How might you explain that? Yeah, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's a that's an excellent question uh, because it, it is funny. There is a part of me, you know, you write this book and so much of it comes out of just, you know, being, uh, you know, I was in my early to mid 20s when the four horsemen were around, you mm-hmm. know, kind of raised in a Christian home. And so through my 20s and into my early 30s, I'm just struggling personally with the question of God. And a lot of it grows out of, you know, engaging those kinds of texts in a, in a broad way, at least. Um, uh, and yet you write a dissertation and quickly watch like, I don't know if this is even relevant now. Mm, right, <laughs> because, right. uh, yeah, atheism, you know, the, the fate of atheism, even in the last 10 years is very possibly different, though. And here's maybe one way of answering it is to use Taylor's notion of the Nova effect. Um, What Taylor names when he talks about the Nova effect is it's not, in one sense, we could say that atheism has been made more plausible, and that is Mm -hmm. why there are atheists around these days. Um, And yet that's not actually apart from a bunch of other things being made potentially plausible. And so when Taylor talks about the Nova effect, it's like, you you know, it's it's the 26,000 denominations effects writ large, right? That's not because of some Protestant idea. That's because of the frontier and everything, you know, things can just happen when you all have more than two or three teams, basically. But, you know, sort of through the 19th century and on, the nature of the public sphere, the nature of public discourse, the traveling of ideas is such that increasingly, and I think we, we could say it this way about ourselves, Everybody, nobody here has a has a predictable, you know, let's say we're all reformed in the room and came to the Westminster, you know, we all subscribe to Westminster or something. No two of us had a predictable path to getting there. Mm-hmm. We are all a big hodgepodge <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a weird set of forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can manifest in atheism. But what I think you're seeing increasingly is the plausibility, uh, especially in the last 10 years of kind of maybe ironic to not so ironic forms of spirituality and such that that might still have atheism's kind of lack of metaphysical cosmic commitment maybe we're being agnostic about like the big big things behind the veil out there but imminent within the world perhaps or you know more ghostly things uh, are getting a little more popular now and here um uh, i think tara isabella burton's book strange rights which you guys are probably aware yes. of uh, i think is a really excellent Uh, fascinating, exactly, read of almost a contemporary neo-pagan, a a kind of both on the right and the left, a kind of neo-pagan resurgence, which, again, I don't doubt that that's fusible with philosophical atheism on some register. And yet you you get the sense that there's less pressure to do that. I'm sure there's, you know, nerds in Silicon Valley still who are, you know, proselytizing atheism or something. But but yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, I think the idea is still relevant because in a sense, like we're, st- we're nevertheless naming part of what the book is really trying to do is name a common set of forces we're all in. And even if it doesn't manifest in atheism, it's going to manifest in, uh, uh, in the plausibility of something that you have to orient yourself relative to and that, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I don't know if that helps. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the things that struck me about the, the book as well is, you know, your treatment of technology is very compelling. Uh, and I've always, I, I particularly, 
this sounds heresy, I know, in some circles. I particularly appreciated your use of the early Karl Marx, because I think that stuff that he's doing in the 1840s about alienation. Yeah. You've just confirmed all the worst things, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We all knew. We all knew. <laughs> well, even I noticed just this week at Public Discourse, which is a, a online journal that I'm very friendly with and write for. I was referred to as a Hegelian Marxist of all things. So nice. on Tuesday, teaching Charles Taylor, I kept beginning sentences as a Hegelian Marxist. This is how <laughs> I think about this. Um, but it, you know, one of the things that Marx is getting at there, and I think that the, you know, we may rightly reject his answers, but he's clearly at the forefront of understanding that how we make things and the technology by which we make things has a profound effect on how we understand ourselves and how we understand ourselves in relation to the world and, and other people. Um, well, clearly we, we're no longer in the 1840s. We're now in the, you know, the, the, the 2020s. Uh, how do you think that technology is playing into what one might describe as the sort of the anthropological chaos of our day. I mean, a lot of people zero on the question, what is a woman? I, I'm convinced that what is a woman is only difficult to answer because the prior question, what is a human being, has become incredibly yeah. difficult to answer. Yeah, what does it just mean to be? Yeah, yeah, or just, yeah, yeah. I, that, that question of anthropology is, is just right. Yeah, I think one way of answering that is to, what's fun about going on interviews about the book is you develop ways of summarizing the book that make the book superfluous. So here's one way of making <laughs> it superfluous. In a, uh, and, and maybe that's a good thing uh, for everybody is, uh, yeah, Marx that that early Marx essay on on alienation I think is so crucial and it's a <clears throat> it's a discourse that's classic in conservative as you you all well know in conservative political theory as well there was always a concern for the connection between a person and their labor and and effectively the the kind of contrast I try to draw in the book is that uh, there there maybe are three ways you could say this in a bunch of other ways but. In an old subsistence order prior to kind of migration to the cities, you might say, not that I'm against city living, I'm not doing any of that, obviously, in the book, but... Um, in I'm a against it, by the way, but... Oh, uh, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Carl can be that guy. I'll, I'll be, I'll be <laughs> ecumenical up in here. Uh, uh, but, the, but three of the things I think that reinforced what you might call the God instinct, if we could put it that way, are that... Are that the world uh, for most human beings is navigated as a very stubborn set of agencies. And so it's like, here I am in South Carolina with this forest behind me on a hill. Most of those things uh, would have insisted themselves upon you in very immediate practical ways that you can't just get around. They're kind of agents that you have to agent in relation to. And you add to that what you're doing in that context usually is is a kind of labor that you might not even like. Maybe I don't want to go plant potatoes and grow them, but I do know exactly why I'm doing it. And I know the meaning of it. I like it. There's meaning in my hands because I know if I don't do this, we're all going to die. <laughs> uh, and maybe I do enjoy my labor, but it's incredibly connected labor that, that where I understand exactly what I'm doing. And it's usually in a community of persons that you know on such overlapping levels of trust. Uh, 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 and and where your gifts plug into the community in a very natural, or I say natural, I'm not trying to make this, uh, uh, to, to idealize this past, but where your gifts plug into the community in very concrete, practical ways. And one way of asking the question then, and I'll, I'll contrast that to the modern world in a minute, 
is what does reality itself seem like in the mirror of those things? There's the agency of the world. You're connected in some very visceral way to your own agency. And the agency of other humans is also something you can't navigate around. You can't just choose to go to a different community. Um, in the mirror of all those agencies interacting with each other, the kind of refraction, the reflection of a kind of capital A agent bottoming out the whole thing is pretty natural. Even if, it, you know, the, you know, the mind first stops at paganism or pantheism or something, uh, the idea that somehow we're moving toward agency, personhood, is very, is, I think, a natural instinct. In the modern world, all three of those things shift. The, the agency, with the vast proliferation of modern technology, the agency and the, and the kind of voice of the world in its own nature speaking for itself is kind of silenced in a way. You can go see it by will, but it's not something you actually have to engage. So I just moved to South Carolina, and for the first time in my life, the canopy of light that covered the sky of stars is gone. And I am a human being who does not really have a relationship with the stars, which is crazy. I mean, that's mm. insane yeah. on historic, but that's that's the normal human experience today. But then you add to that the labor component of it. Uh, uh, my connection to my labor in a context where you're moving into the city and now you have to work for wages to get this mysterious thing called money, which takes on an extremely prominent role. The mediation of all things through this peculiar entity called money is a very odd thing historically. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But now, now the labor I'm doing tends to plug into a system that I don't fully understand. And I'm not even really sure what I'm doing a lot of the time. I mean, I know that I take this stack of paperwork and sign it and then put it on this to the assembly line, but it's unclear to me that like the things I'm doing aren't really, they're just to get money. The, the, the connection to them is a bit lost. And then you add the social dimension to that, the, the, the mobility where we don't have to live near each other. I don't have to go to church. And if I go to church and I don't like it, I can go to the other one. And, if it, it, like, and even if I go to church, I, I'm not going to naturally and by necessity just smash into people by accident if I don't want to. And so the question becomes in the if we could reverse then that the agencylessness of the world, the agencylessness of myself, people talk about being passive and carried along in a sense in their own labor. And then the the, the foreclosed agency even of persons. What does the cosmic whole, the abyssal center of it all look like in the mirror of that experience? And my argument is, is like, it's it's not surprising for some people, at least, maybe it's a, it takes a preset personality or something. It's not surprising that, that that's going to bottom out in this sensation. Well, it's just abyssally black all the way down. And my mind and the tension kind of, in a sense, the book is trying to establish is my mind can still take the journey of saying, oh, here's the arguments for the existence of God. And that's, you know, I'm persuaded that you know, I can feel my mind going, yeah, that argument works. And yet it's has this almost schizophrenic juxtaposition to 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 what things seem like in some holistic way. Uh, I, I don't think it needs to be that way, but I think by habit, without counterformation, in a sense, maybe we'll we'll live that schizophrenic way. And and I think what you're describing surfaces all kinds of felt needs among people. And mm. how would you say that the the church can seize upon those disconnections and the anxiety? produced by by what you're describing um to make um unbelief less plausible if that makes sense 
Yeah, I think part of it is to recognize that it's us. What we're talking about isn't the unbelievers out there, it's us. And actually, we have something to offer when we work on us. And so, you know, what I what I tell all my students is it's easy for you to think that, or us to think that, that all those trans people out there are so disoriented and we're the oriented ones. But the fact that there's a whole cottage industry of 50 books a year on how to be a biblical man for Jesus suggests to me uh, that we are likewise, that we are likewise disoriented. And yeah. we share we, we share something. So part of what I want to do in all of my work is start with kind of the headspace of what we share with our fellows. And I think like the church speaking into it then is really the, the church speaking into its own life and us speaking into our own life. Lives because I think I think there's a rhetorical posture that's often taken in churches that, that we've been trained into, perhaps, which is kind of the church as answer haver to the non non-answer havers. And, and I'm not trying to say the church doesn't in, in its creeds doesn't contain answers. It does. Right. But the creed is also ahead of us, and we're growing into it hmm. as well. And, and and we as individuals, I think, can be very disoriented. And you know, in a sense, it's like we can be well there's so many thoughts coming in my head that i i'm 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 cutting myself off here here's what here's what i'm trying to do and uh, i'm i'm writing a new book now i'm not trying to make this an advert but <laughs> i'm writing a new book now that it really is trying to apply this same this uh, these same kind of kind of type of analysis to the whole christian faith and the attempt is to kind of walk through and say here's the virgin birth, here's miracles. Well, here's Jesus and like he died on a cross and somehow that fixes all the problems. Mm. I feel weird about all those claims too. <laughs> like mm. I know the arguments, I've read systematic theology and do all that, but there's a piece of me that finds it a foreign world to talk about mm -hmm. you died on a cross and somehow that fixes things. And just, just being, I think Christians can be very afraid of that space in themselves. Mm. And actually one thing I think that helps us is just to say, God can handle that space in yourself. You don't have to go ex-evangelical or anything like right. that. You can get in the headspace of just saying, okay, I, I know some of the answers, but it's not, it's not that, you know, it's not so solid in me that it's not a little weird. And I think treating that as an opportunity to be honest before God and to say, hey, help me know, help me hold on firmer and actually to do that calmly as though God loves you and understands that things are weird right now. And he's for us. <laughs> and I think that that's a lot of, yeah, that's a lot. What I'm doing, I'm going to throw this out there because now, now I really am advertising. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> but the, 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 what I try, actually, it's really because I want to, I want, uh, I, Carl Truman and I are talking. And so I, I, I can't not tell you my, the, handy dandy definition of modernity that I'm developing, that I think I hope will help churches, which is, a. Uh, the simultaneous global renegotiation of all human custom. So Taylor talks about how kind of secularism is this renegotiation of just the question of God. And I think you, if you added, actually modernity is it's global, it's happening everywhere. <laughs> and it's really the whole set of human customs, theological customs, gender norm customs, political customs, it's all up for grabs and it's all happening fast and it's all happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's where we exist as churches. And, and I think if churches could just recognize, hey, that's what we're in, <laughs> that's what we're in, then we're just in the right headspace to even think about what apologetics is in that context. And I think there's somebody like Lewis is still our light, because I think he un fundamentally understood that's what the modern world is. And the reason he is read and so many other people aren't still. It's <laughs> mm. because he understood who he understood what headspace he was talking into because it was his own. Yeah.
Yeah, that's good. It's a it's a great reminder for us not to strip Christianity of its weirdness. Um, and and I think anybody who's uh, whether you're developing theology lectures or preparing sermons every week, I, I know in sermon prep there are times and it's necessary where I feel the distance between mm. where I am and how I think with with what the gospel is, and and I have to struggle through that each week. Not not struggling through unbelief, but struggling just with the the distance between my life and and what I see portrayed um, in in God's word. So that's a great it's a great reminder. Well, obviously, everyone. I mean, we could go um, on and on with this discussion, and it's fascinating. But what I would encourage you to do is go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can register um, to uh, win a free copy of Joseph Minnick's excellent book. And I, I do highly recommend it. Um, I took my good time working through it because there was so much to think on. But it's called Bulwarks of Unbelief, Atheism and Divine Absence in a Secular Age. And the foreword's written by a guy named Carl Truman. I didn't find that very helpful, actually. But um, the, the book itself is is really good. Also, um, uh, I, I you know, if, if you if you go to... Um, uh, Amazon to look at the book, uh, you'll, you'll likely see uh, Joseph's uh, uh, shorter treatment on some similar themes called Enduring Divine um, Absence. And I would encourage you to to check that out as well. Um, so we're so glad that, uh, that all of you were able to join us. Um, hope that uh, this discussion challenged you and whetted your appetite in some good ways. Um, if you're able and you want to make a contribution to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to provide good, thoughtful content like this, um, we would encourage you to do that. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you to Joseph Minnick for making good work and writing books that are actually really uh, well worth reading, and we'll look forward to the next one and uh, look forward to uh, to being with you all next time. Oh, then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Mortification of Spin.